Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. The dream. What is the dream, basically? To have money? A job that you don't mind going to every day? That's probably it, but I'm fairly certain that once those basic dream goals are met, you start really dreaming going after the things you never really had time to consider. If I had it all, all the things that would make it seem as though I made it, I know what I would do. I already have a job that I love. The money will come, I assume, or hope. And now I'm starting to think about the next thing. The next thing being personal happiness. Do I have to mention kids in a relationship? Yes, I have those too, but that track isn't for everyone, so I skipped it. Let's keep it general. You hear it all the time, that money can't buy you happiness. And only those with money and who are unhappy can confirm this. But I assume that once you're sitting pretty, it likely feels like you've reached the top of a mountain. And for anyone who's accomplished such a feat, you'll know that once you sit up top and celebrate for a bit, you start to think about having to head back down. And the all-encompassing thought at that point likely is, how do I continue? What can I do next that will give me that rush I had on the climb up? Because slowly making my way back down this mountain and back to a normal life is depressing as hell. Depressing enough to walk straight off a ledge and take the speedy way down. Right on top of my fucking head. If you do things right, once you conquer a mountain, you then begin to build your own. One that you can offer others the option of climbing and earn rewards of which you both now benefit. That's the business side. But the personal side gets pretty interesting for some of us. Once we reach the top, we start looking around at the world of which is now our oyster and feel like a king. A king who can now do whatever he pleases. As a king, I'd like to think I'd improve the lives of those around me. But some people don't just become a king or a queen. They also become a tyrant. They use their power to manipulate and destroy those still climbing surrounding mountains or simply milling about at the bottom trying to get their courage up to climb. This episode's subject was one such tyrant, a mild-mannered, self-made man who, once he finally climbed his mountain, started inviting representations of his true self to the top, where he then destroyed them, and may have even created a vacuum beyond this world, where he continues his rule as a demon. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 22, Herb Baumeister.
April 7, 1947. Herbert Richard Baumeister is born in Butler, Tarkington, Indianapolis, a middle-class neighborhood. His father, Herbert Sr., was an anesthesiologist. Fuck me, I can't say that word. Anesthesiologist. His mother, Elizabeth, was a housewife. Herb Jr. was their first child of an eventual four. As the family grew and Herb's father continued his medical profession, the brood eventually moved to Washington Township, an upper-class neighborhood in Indianapolis. By all accounts, it was a good start for young Herb Baumeister Jr. Herb was a tall, gangly, baby-faced kid known to be a harmless jokester until he entered his teens when he began to stand out for all the wrong reasons. Earlier, he had been very popular in the class clown. After puberty, his jokes became socially unacceptable and he was soon considered an outcast. However, Herb was not a lonely introvert. He was an extrovert and did not stop inflicting his company on others. This made him stand out much more than your average socially inept teenager. He shared all his strange thoughts and behaviors with others. One time when he was hanging out with some boys, he started musing about drinking urine. Would it taste better cold or hot? He then chased the boys around, begging them to have a drink. They laughed it off as a joke, but they soon stopped giggling when he pulled out his penis and started to piss on their shoes. This isn't a shocker to me personally. I was in school during the 90s where it was commonplace to fuck with people in disturbing ways, it seems. I had more than one can of beer handed to me that ended up containing piss. Uh, while, while using a urinal, I always had to watch my back and my shoes as my sadistic friends loved slamming people from behind while they took a leak. I even recall one of my old friends taking a shit in another companion's backpack. The worst thing that happened to me was sucking deep from a bottle that I was told contained recently brewed hash smoke, but had actually been... Um, it was it was a combusted, bloody scab from a friend of mine's knee. You know, harmless stuff. Herb was just ahead of his time, in my opinion, <laughs> with this uh, with his jackass-style behavior. We'll see if it gets any worse. The high school Herb went to revolved around the sports teams, and Herb, who was not athletic, kept trying to join them, and usually failed. He never sought out cliques other than the ones comprised of the most popular kids, he was obsessed with the grotesque, macabre, and plain old disgusting. He made jokes that creep people out. On multiple occasions, he was seen scooping up dead crows and hiding them in his bag. Those crows would later be found in his teacher's desk. Everyone knew Herb did it, but it was not proven. And he was a wealthy teen with respectable parents, so was often let off the hook. However, finally there was an incident that made the school report his behavior to his parents. Herb had taken his urination games to the next level and pissed all over his teacher's desk. His parents were called in, and in return for their promise to seek professional help for their son, Herb was allowed to return to school. However, it seems that his father used contacts with other doctors to ensure that Herb received a cascade of referrals, which never led to a psychiatric diagnosis or treatment. Herb's parents were likely worried about the stigma that accompanied mental illness in those times, much more so than now or they could have been justifiably wary of subjecting their son to that period's mental health treatments. Baumeister finished high school, an outcast, but doing academically well enough. Uh, but socially, he was completely isolated due to the rumors about all of uh, his odd behaviors. 1965. Herb starts his freshman year at Indiana University, but drops out after one semester. He had likely hoped this would be his chance to finally fit in socially, his reputation back home would not have followed him this far, he was hoping. 
However, what many fail to realize, including Herb, is that you can't leave your past behind if you take it with you. Herb continued to behave strangely and was immediately recognized by other students as one of those guys. One of those guys being the type who never go back to the drawing board. They keep expecting the world to change in order to suit them. He quit after the first semester, likely because of his feelings of isolation. Herb moved back in with his parents. His father was upset and disappointed in his son, but soon started pulling strings and secured Herb an entry-level position as a copy boy in a local newspaper, the Indianapolis Star. Herb threw himself into this job, determined to impress the higher-ups and make his way up the ladder and eventually prove himself to his father. He always dressed in suits for work, tried too hard to network, and again made strange jokes that turned off those he interacted with. These jokes usually included odd references to states of body decomposition, of which he was obsessed. He was overly sycophantic, attempting to ingratiate himself by offering favors, but he was too weird for that to work. His sole half-hearted defender was Donna Gray, an executive in the advertising department. On one occasion, he overheard Donna and his office friends talking about going to the Indiana football game. Herb volunteered to give them a ride and put a lot of effort into the wrong angle. He arrived to pick them up wearing a chauffeur's hat and driving a hearse he had procured specially using his dad's hospital connections. Donna was embarrassed. Herb realized he was not getting the praise and admiration he wanted, and he quit. Again. His father was furious, and Herb, to please him, agreed to give university another shot. This time, he would to start, enroll in just one course to prove to his father he could finish what he started. Herb chose the course, anatomy. This pleased his father, who thought Herb was starting on the path to follow him as a doctor. In reality, Herb took the class because he was interested in corpses, corpses he imagined would be laid out on every table, just waiting for him to do with, as he pleased. Shove a pencil in an eye, sink a finger deep into an ear canal, perhaps, Turned out it was just a theoretical class with books. He was disappointed, but still took it. 1967. Herb begins his studies. He had free time and a reason to be in Indianapolis, so he followed his heart and found himself dipping his toes into the local gay scene. He attended drag shows at clubs and was around often enough that he started making friends. This is a world of which you might be surprised to know, or maybe not, that I was... Uh, witnessed to in the late 90s, not in Indianapolis, but in Toronto, Canada. I bring this up only to lend a little color to what is a major twist in Herb's story here. I'm not a homosexual, uh, even bi. I've been described by gay friends of mine as the straightest person you'll ever meet. Uh, but I'm, I'm a sucker for the world Herb's story has just thrown us into. A world that's full of people who have come to terms with who they truly are, and almost always, especially back then, at a price. The price of being shunned by your family in many cases. I was brought along into this world by a sequence of important figures in my life whom I looked up to greatly at the time. I've never had more honest conversations and never found someone worth more of my time listening to than a gay man who must spend his work week appearing straight and has given himself one night out at the club to be himself. It's really a, a beautiful thing to behold. And I'm not afraid to tell you that I wish back then that I was gay so that I, I would have found, you know, finally found a community that understood me, had a place to go. Herb Baumeister had discovered this for himself and 
Every action of his life from this point forward was initiated with the eventual hope of being able to break free from the false world he'd created for himself to visit this new world of which he now understood was his true home. Herb's father thought that his son wasn't doing anything with his spare time and pressed him to get out and meet people. As the Baumeister clan was quite conservative, Herb did not want his father to find out about his new social life, so he created another one. He joined the Campus Young Republicans Club. Herb, like I mentioned, came from a very right-wing family and was himself a radical right-winger, despite some of his very liberal practices on the weekends, <laughs> which I believe is a natural, you know, for anyone who's extreme about anything. They often have some kind of kink that goes completely against what uh, they appear to wholeheartedly believe. Anyways, Herb came from a wealthy, respectable family which counted among the young Republicans. He worked to adjust his personality to suit the expectations of conduct within this stiff little club. He attempted to project a serious, calm persona and spoke little. He was quite popular in this scene and even began to date a young woman from the club, Julie Sater, a high school teacher who was taking some additional classes at the university. They struck up a whirlwind romance, going for Cokes and burgers, pecking each other on the cheek by night's end. Julie would later describe how, despite having similar political opinions to Herb, she was dismayed at the way he spoke, as if he was gleefully invested in the pain conservative policies would inflict on others, more than he was invested in his own interests. There were winners and there were losers. This was Herb's view of the world. And even though he made the type of mistakes that would land a lower middle-class kid on the streets, he saw himself as a winner, because his father was a winner. This kind of blind confidence is incredibly powerful. Guys like Herb piss entitlement all over the shoes of those who are much more deserving of its fruit, though too humble to pick it. Herb was at a crossroads, and seemingly he decided to take the straight and narrow path. He stopped going to gay bars and cut off contact with the friends he had on the scene. He told his father he was not going to continue to take classes in university because he wanted to start in business instead and to make a fortune. His father agreed to help him find a job again to get his start, but it was not so easy. His contacts got his son many interviews, but Herb never made it to the next stage. On paper, he looked like a great candidate. Dropping out of college was not uncommon in the 70s or even today, so that wasn't an issue. He came from a good background, he dressed in suits, and by appearance and pedigree should have been very employable. But Herb came across as unstable and super fucking weird in interviews. Julie was introduced to Herb's parents early on, and they had mixed feelings about her. Julie is similar to Herb in that she comes from a good family, but is a bit of a dud. Soon, Herb announced that he intended to marry Julie, which his parents felt was abrupt. However, Herb insisted. It all seemed a little contrived to everybody looking in, and a case of two people going through the motions they thought expected of them. Ah, well, there are plenty of people out there together because, uh, hey, why not? I mean, I guess we get married, right? We had some dates, some pops, some burgies. I made you laugh that one time, remember? <laughs> That's agree on paper to be together forever. And, uh, you know, in, in Herb and Julie's case, there was no sex, you know. They decided it best to just fumble around with that on the big night. It'll be, you know, it'll be fucking magic. 1971. Julie and Herb get married. This was a large church wedding with both families there. All the father's important friends and the Young Republicans Club. This was a 
debutante ball for Herb's grown-up persona. Calm, quiet, serious. It presented him in the best possible light. Entering an institution that connotes stability, surrounded by his community of normal people. After the wedding, Herb received several job interviews. Herb and Julie's relationship was very close. They were joined at the hip and spent every moment together. They were both very intent on making a fortune. Perhaps Herb wanted the constant companion to keep him from straying again. They did not have sex before marriage, which is not seen as unusual because they were both very religious. However, after the marriage, this likely became an issue. Herb changed in the bathroom. He wouldn't let his wife see him naked. I don't blame him. He looked like he had the build of a salamander. The two got a mortgage on a small house in the suburbs and moved there. This is when the trouble started. Maybe it was having to make love with a woman which went against his true sexual nature. Maybe it was simply the pressures of marriage, the new responsibilities. But Herb started acting very strange, malfunctioning under the weight of his facade. Six months after the wedding, Herb Sr. visited his son and daughter-in-law after securing Herb an entry-level position at the Bureau of Mortar Vehicles. His son was not himself. He seemed flat-affected and overly passive. Herb Sr. had his son committed for treatment of depression, and Junior spent two months in a hospital. His depression was treated. While there, he participated in therapy sessions, and his doctors realized there was an underlying problem. At the time, they thought he was schizophrenic and suffering from multiple personality disorder. These diagnoses are almost certainly inaccurate. In the 70s, schizophrenia was a catch-all for many conditions we now separate. Pharmaceutical treatments for schizophrenia had just become available. Multiple personality disorder was a fad in the 70s, later discredited completely, and the correct consensus is that while it exists, it is exceedingly rare, as in a handful of confirmed cases in medical history. What the doctors possibly noticed uh, as a red flag about Herb was his ability to compartmentalize and disassociate, almost at will. This is a skill we are all capable of, but one that's more acutely honed in those of us who are pretending to be something we're not. The nature versus nurture debate can be touched on with this observation. Some of us learn how to deaden guilt out of necessity. I believe one can learn not to feel shame or to feel it less uh, intensely than others. If we can evolve to become better in tune with ourselves, it has to be true that we can become the opposite as well. Less in tune, outside of ourselves, maybe not permanently, but with the aid of drugs like alcohol, for periods of time. Throw in some mental illness and you've got a runaway train. Speaking of trains, let's derail a little more on this train of thought. I believe that there are many potential serial killers or rapists or child molesters out there. I think I can spot them, and I'm sure you feel the same. I'm saying potential. But they simply don't act on their impulses due to either cowardice or self-control. An unpopular or uncomfortable thought I've at times almost shared is that killing or stealing or doing anything illegal takes a perverse kind of courage. Many of us live very safe. And the reason is that we're scared of the repercussions of acting out on our impulses. Just That's why we have laws in place. That's what they're fucking meant to do. But just recall anyone that you've ever met who claims that they do something outlandish under the right set of circumstances. They're everywhere, these blowhards. My experience with people like that is that, you know, they claim they rob a bank or kill someone in revenge if their lives presented an opportunity. Uh, but I know they'd never do it. Because they've spoken it. That's, their, that's how they vented it. They're venting a desire that they'll never fulfill. 
The ones that will do it, usually, you know, they'll never say a word. They just act. And that ability to act is rare. Those of us willing to go for it are celebrated for our bravery when it's a positive act and chastised for the negative. But it doesn't change the fact that both roads are brave ones to head down. Well, risky, risky ones that take a scary type of courage, in my opinion. Herb never received treatment because his father came and rescued him. He found the depression gone in his son and did not believe he was crazy, so he signed him out. It has been theorized that the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia helped Herb Baumeister make sense of his own psyche, and this explains why he was better when he returned home. Possibly he took care of any guilt or shame he was feeling for his fantasies and urges, since now it was not his fault, because he was sick. It's not his fault that he likes looking at shit that's dead. It's not his fault that he's a homosexual. When he returned home, he started going to gay bars again. He was no longer quiet and passive, but began to be assertive and even controlling. But Julie liked this better than when he was depressed. He told her he would be spending more time alone from now on, taking long drives and thinking. She accepted this. The job at the BMV was still waiting for him, and he immersed himself in his work. 1972. At the BMV, Herb distinguished himself as a good worker with an exceptional eye for details, which likely served him well later as a serial killer. He behaved in an overbearing way, dressing down his peers for small mistakes, abusing his power. However, management liked him because he was a good worker and a bit of an asshole, which... Let's be honest, is management material. A style of it, at least, that gets the job done. In the eyes of upper management. On the lower level, I mean, it's best just to be fucking, you know, a good guy and lead by example, but uh, whatever works. I guess. At some point during the first few years of the BMV, Herb's love of strange jokes returned, and he sent office mates a Christmas card with a picture of him and another man in drag. His fellow employees began to gossip that Herb was gay and a pervert. This probably set back his eventual promotion. Several years. Regardless, the true nature of Herb Baumeister was beginning to surface. Alright everybody, Zipix Toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix Nicotine Toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix. Nicotine toothpicks. 
All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Nineteen seventy-nine. Julie and Herb welcome their first child, a girl. Herb is a doting father who spends lots of time with his kids. Unlike his own distant father, Herb is hands-on. When he can get away, he picks up male prostitutes and, based on several police complaints, sometimes roughs them up. He does not have any social contact with gay men or behave as a gay man other than what occurs at the bars and in the privacy of his vehicle after rescuing a young man off the highway. In 1980, the first known victim of the I-70 Stranglers discovered by the roadside. Herb Baumeister was, almost certainly, the I-70 Strangler. He was also putatively connected with a spree murderer known as the I-70 Killer. I'll get to more of these unidentified serial killers shortly, but for our purposes, or at least mine, in telling this tale, we will continue to learn about the Herb Baumeister we know for certain. Just keep in mind that as I continue here, there are bodies piling up alongside the interstate of which Mr. Baumeister frequently traveled. Herb is eventually promoted at the DMV after managing to behave like a half-normal human being for a stretch. His strange ways are being exercised on the young men being found naked and strangled out in the world, perhaps. He and Julie have two more kids, the second a boy and the last child, a girl, is born in 1984, and the couple are very happy with the life they've built, though the flames of passion are snuffed after they decide procreating season has ended. They have sex a total of six times throughout their quarter-decade marriage. Dish. Spill the tea, according to Julie. It's obvious that Herb only had sex with his wife as a means to become a father. When the mood strikes Herb, he's more likely to strap a bag over his face and furiously masturbate in the washroom than grab Julie by the hips at the kitchen sink. Julie leaves her job as a teacher to stay home full... (laughs) Sorry. Julie leaves her job as a teacher to stay home full time. Herb has three kids now, has less me time, and is having trouble at work. His critical, abrasive demeanor with underlings does not translate well to his relationship with his supervisor. He is seen as odd for many reasons, one being that he keeps a cake in his desk drawer, of which he observes daily, fascinated by its deterioration. Herb falls back on an old strategy for relieving stress and 
begins to secretly piss in and on his boss's desk. This goes on for months, but unlike what happened at school, they'd need proof to fire him. He's the prime suspect. So much so that people thought it couldn't be him because it was too obvious. In 1985, Herb is finally busted after being spotted leaving the scene of another rage-venting session, pissing on desks. I picture him smiling broadly at a fellow employee and commenting on the weather before ducking into the boss's office and making it rain glorious piss as his face twists in sadistic ecstasy. Herb is retroactively linked to the months-long urine-soaked desk situation. Although he was not caught with his dick literally in his hand, he leaves quietly and, in return, his pissing habit is not made public. Julie has to go back to work as a result. Herb's father was out of contacts, which could help his son, so Herb was on his own. On occasion, Herb secures short-time sales positions that require him to travel frequently, and the bodies by the road begin to bloom. The rest of the time, he is taking care of the kids. He is good at that. So good that he has free time, which he begins to spend in gay bars. He also increases his drinking, MGD being his drink of choice, a brand of which appears to sponsor the deaths caused by the I-70 Strangler, crumpled cans of it often dotting the roadside, leading away from the bodies. September 1985. Herb is involved in a hit-and-run accident while under the influence, but is let go with a slap on the hand, an incident that bolsters his confidence and lends to a belief that his internal evil is invisible to all. He increases his already heavy drinking to deal with his demons at this time, but also begins using cocaine to help bring them out. By the end of the year, tired of travel jobs, he asks his father again to help him gain employment. The only job available is an entry-level position at a thrift shop. Herb hates the job, but he persists and learns the thrift business. He is inspired by the potential profits of which he feels his current employers are not realizing. March, 1986. Herb is charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but again is let go, likely due to the silver spoon that's always dangling from his pouty lips. 1987, Herb Sr. passes away, a momentous occasion in any man's life, especially for Herb, who tried and failed to prove himself to his successful father again and again. Days after the funeral, Herb tells Julie of his vision for their own thrift store. In 1988, after having secured a $4,000 loan from his mother, Herb and Julie open their first thrift shop, Save-A-Lot, and it hits the ground running. The secret to the store's success was that it was very clean and organized, well-lit, and the quality control was superb, so all the items were good. Within a year, the store was doing so well that they opened another. Within three years, they were rich and moved to their dream home. Ironically, Herb had finally met the goal he had set out to achieve, but the intended audience, his father, was no longer there to grant approval. 1991. The family moved to Fox Hollow Farm, an 18-acre horse ranch featuring a Tudor-style mansion with an indoor pool and a guest house. Fox Hollow Farm is located in Westfield District, Hamilton County, the wealthiest county in Indiana and about 20 miles away from Indianapolis. The Baumeisters were from good stock, successful, and respected. However, working side by side induced stress into their relationship. Herb berated Julie at work and they fought a lot, but they kept this a secret. At home, they spent a lot of time together, tending to their new property, Julie trimming the hedges and thinking of the summer to come, and all the fun to be had with the kids at the cottage, Herb mowing the lawn and daydreaming of strangling men whom 
he is ordered to masturbate, their hands soon moving from their task to hesitantly reach up for their throats, where the hose is beginning to sink deeper into their windpipe, the world swimming away, their tongues protruding, eyes bulging, maybe even ejaculating as they die. As I touched on earlier, it is widely believed that Herb Baumeister was the I-70 Strangler, a killer who murdered young men and left them by the interstate, which links Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis. In total, if this very plausible theory is true, Baumeister murdered at least 27 men between 1980 and 1996. The I-70 victims were all found nude or semi-nude and strangled in rivers or streams alongside the freeway. During the early 80s, Herb was constantly on the I-70 for his sales jobs and on a very tight budget. He was sleeping in cheap motels and eating at truck stops, just where the victims were picked up. Receipts would later show that Baumeister had been traveling up and down the I-70 at the right range of times for both murder sprees of the I-70 Strangler and the I-70 Killer, of which we'll get to. There was a forensic sketch made of the I-70 Strangler based on a witness description a witness who believed they'd seen a young man who wound up dead getting into a vehicle with an odd, out-of-place, Mormon-type-looking dude. This sketch looks a lot like Baumeister. Moreover, an eyewitness identified Baumeister as the man he saw leaving a bar in 1983 with Michael Riley, later found murdered, most certainly by the I-70 Strangler. Bodies were discovered on the interstate from 1980 until 1991. 91 being the year when Baumeister moved into the multi-million dollar estate on Fox Hollow Farms. After 1991, Herb would have not needed to leave bodies by the highway. He can get rid of them in the forest around his new dream home. Or so the theory goes. Over the next five years, Herb and Julie separate and get back together multiple times. Julie would take the kids and go stay with her mother-in-law at her cottage 100 miles north. Herb stayed behind on his own, and they told people that was so he could run the stores, to save face over their deteriorating marriage. The stately home of Fox Hollow was not kept in good repair by the Baumeisters. They let the gardens overgrow, and the house was dirty and messy. Herb began to hoard stashes of thrift store goods in the house because he was expanding the business, and the stores couldn't accommodate the stock and remain tidy. He was traveling a lot, to auctions, to buy more stock. The two fought loudly, but around the neighborhood... Herb was known as the pleasant one, and Julie was known as a bit of a shrew. Like I said, he was a hands-on dad, often preparing drinks and snacks for his kids and their neighborhood friends, serving them outside in the patio. Julie was embarrassed at the state of the house and would scream at the children's friends if they attempted to enter it. The kids were usually sent outside to play, and their friends were never allowed in the house at all. Good thing there was so much outdoor space, a patio, a garden, an orchard, Though there were certain spots Herb told his children to steer clear of, the woods out back of the pool room, specifically. The only area Herb kept well-maintained was the pool house. He had a full wet bar there, which he kept stocked in. He also filled the place with decor and mannequins. Yeah, mannequins, which he dressed up and placed around the pool to look like a party was going down. 
He was lonely and treated the mannequins like party guests, surely speaking to them and offering drinks as he stumbled wildly in and out of the water. An odd and creepy practice. Julie could not wait to get out of the house, and she would take the kids and stay with her mother-in-law at the cottage at every opportunity, even though her mother-in-law was not that thrilled about it. Julie wasn't the best at picking up on signals. Uh, She's a fucking total dud, like I said. Julie would eventually visit the cottage on weekends with the kids and be gone all summer, affording her plenty of time to play. Spring, 1992. A murderer known as the I-70 Killer, not to be confused with the I-70 Strangler, shoots dead one male, who was likely mistaken as a female due to having a ponytail, and five female store workers and owners in shopping centers off the I-70. All murders were carried out with a 22 caliber gun. The victims were all young and had long, dark hair. They were all working at stores that catered to women or were likely to be run by women. All of the victims were shot execution style in the back of the head after likely being distracted to check for an item. There were no signs of sexual assault, but the killer did attempt to make the murders appear to be sexually driven by pulling down the pants of at least one victim. These were supremely impersonal murders. Although money was taken from all stores, robbery was likely a secondary motivation or used to divert law enforcement as the stores chosen were small specialty stores, not the ones a thief would choose to target. The cartridges of the bullets have been coated with jeweler's rouge, which anyone in the thrift store business uses to remove surface scratches from glass and plastic and to polish silver. It is used as a countermeasure to stop a gun from sticking as well, so it suggests an experienced shooter. It also suggests someone who knows about police procedure. He doesn't want to take his gun in for repairs at a shop, so he uses this kludge. Herb was an experienced shooter and frequently attended gun ranges. Two composite sketches were made of the attacker, who was described as a white man in his 30s, 5'9", with lazy eyelids and reddish hair. That matched Herb at the time, except for the fact that he was over 6 feet tall, which I'll admit is a pretty glaring discrepancy, although Herb was known to be a sloucher. Herb was also known to own a twenty-two, like the one used by the shooter, which he used specifically for business trips, trips that would have brought him in and around these areas where the murders occurred. Herb is a likely suspect in these crimes, but with far less certainty than his identification with the I-70 Strangler or the Fox Hollow murders, of which I'll tackle in part two of this case. Herb's known victims were all men, and the murders all had a sexual motive. However, Dr. Barak and I think the change in pattern of victims in the I-70 killer case makes sense given the change in M.O. He was having a hard time with his wife at the time, who had long brown hair, was petite like the victim's, and the victims could have been representations of her in his mind, as they all were brunettes, like his wife. He did not like having sex with women, was even turned off by it. If these murders had been sexual in nature, we probably wouldn't have even brought this one up. But the thought that or not makes it interesting. The sketches made of the I-70 killer are very like those made for the I-70 strangler. Herb was based on receipts near the crimes at the correct times as he drove around buying stock for the stores. The I-70 killer has never been identified. I'm not saying it was Herb Baumeister. Although he appears to be a half-decent suspect outside the fact that he was about 6'3", and the shooter has been thought to be much shorter. Of course, like I said, Herb was known to slouch horribly. Uh, so. Maybe. Regardless, the strangling and dumping murders of the I-70 strangler and the impersonal shooting deaths of store clerks by the I-70 killer cease around the time that the Baumeisters move into the residence on Fox Hollow Farms. 
Perhaps Herb is ready to settle into a more secluded method of murder. He now has a place in which he can bring his prospective victims and dispatch them in a much more private way. It's a fascinating case, the case of Herb Baumeister, a family man who very likely killed prolifically on his side, without notice, for decades. A man full of secrets, secrets he took to the grave, or maybe not. There are many who believe Herb Baumeister is still with us, in spirit, and we'll get to that in part two. But for now, in this rendition of his story at least, he is in his prime. The lawn is actually mowed for a change. The hedges are clipped. The wife and kids are gone. And the pool is back there just waiting for some real-life guests to slip in, then be dragged out into that patch of woods right there for the animals to have at. He turns and raises his face to the sun the peaks of his million-dollar estate casting shadows on either side of him. Herb Baumeister is at the top of his mountain and is ready to begin his bloody rule upon it. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.